Let's bow our heads and have a little prayer. Dear kind Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you as we come to your house, as we gather together now to hear your word. Open up your heart to us. Give us everything we need, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> My mother's name was Hale. And back 40 years or so ago, I set out to trace the Hale family history. And we had a cousin who was a family historian. And I went to visit her quite a few times. And she told me every time that we were related to Nathan Hale, the Revolutionary War spy. And she also traced back my family history to my great-great-grandfather, Eliezer Hale, who was a minister. So she told me, find the connection between Nathan Hale and your great-great-grandfather, Eliezer Hale, and you'll have it. So I started a search. I remember I found a newspaper article written about one of my family reunions was like a hundred years before, and uh, it said they all gathered around and celebrated the idea that they were related to Nathan Hale. So finally my search took me to the homestead of Nathan Hale, and there they gave me a copy of Nathan Hale's descendants. But my grandfather was nowhere on that list. As I was thinking out loud, there was rather a crabby old man there, and he said to me, you're not related to Nathan Hale. So I told him I found a newspaper article that said I was related, and he growled at me, the article is wrong, and you're not related to Nathan Hale. So I wasn't sure what to say. Finally, he told me there's five Hale families that all came from Connecticut, and you're one of those other Hale families, and you can go look it up in a book at the Historical Society in Hartford, Connecticut. So I decided to go and find that book, see for myself. So I went to the Historical Society in Hartford and asked for the book on the five Hale families. They brought it out to me. I began to turn through the pages, page after page, and suddenly written in the margin, the youngest son of Samuel Hale was Eliezer, who became a minister. And there it was. That crabby old man was right. I was not related to Nathan Hale. And all that I had been told was wrong. My whole life, everything that they'd told, the newspaper articles and all of it, had all been wrong. And finally I had the truth. And the truth sends you in the right direction. Well, as I read through my real family history, I realized that they had lived about an hour away from Hartford on the Connecticut River. So within a couple hours, I was standing by the graveside of my great, great, 
great, great, great grandfather. Stood by his grave, and the truth is a very valuable thing. On his grave was carved a statement. It said, come, think on death. Seek God on high. Shun hell below to Jesus fly. I was really happy to read that on my great, 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 great grandfather's grave. Truth is a valuable thing. Once you get a hold of truth, it'll lead you in the right direction. Even if the source of truth happens to be a crabby old man, that's okay. Truth is a very valuable thing. When I got the, finally got the truth about my family history, I was able to trace back eight generations, and it was good to know the truth. In our text today, the truth is being questioned. And the outcome of the story will depend completely on who accepts the truth and who rejects it. Now, we've been going through John's list of Jesus' parables. He handpicked a few miracles out of the hundreds that Jesus did with the purpose of pointing out something special about Jesus. Of all the miracles that John records, only one was actually requested. You recall the nobleman came and asked Jesus to heal his son. All the rest were initiated by Jesus himself. Jesus decided to turn the water into wine. Jesus decided to heal the lame man by the pool. You remember at the feeding of the 5,000, it said Jesus knew what he would do. And Jesus walked on the water. He decided to do that. As Levi talked with you last week, he walked to the disciples in the boat. So now in John chapter 9, we will begin the next miracle that John records. John chapter 9. And no one will ask Jesus to help. He will decide it on his own. John chapter 9, I begin reading at verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. But here's a man, he's sitting on the side of the road. And when you look at him, you can see that his eyes had never developed. Obviously, he was born blind. And so he sits quietly by the road. Now, it is a Sabbath day. And even beggars aren't supposed to beg or cry out loud on the Sabbath. So picture this fella. He's sitting quietly by the road. And Jesus and his disciples come passing by. And it says, Jesus saw him. Now, inside of Jesus, and this is what John's trying to teach us is a tender compassionate heart that is touched by human suffering 
as he looks at the blind man, because he loves him right away, he decides to cure this blind beggar. And as he hesitates a moment, just a moment, something happens that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is thinking. Verse 2. His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Exactly the opposite of what Jesus is thinking. The disciples asked, so who did the big sin that caused this man to be born blind? Did he do it himself or did his parents do it? They immediately passed judgment on the blind man that his punishment was from God. Now, that was the opinion of the Jews, especially the scribes and Pharisees, that certain diseases were punishments from God. So the disciples were thinking like the Jews thought, but still see what a vast difference between the way Jesus is and the way other people think. People are bound to pass judgment. Jesus is bound to love. What a difference is there? Is there not in the way Jesus behaves? Jesus answered, verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me. Well, it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. God said, Jesus says, God is going to use this blindness to show light. And I will do God's work, he said, and I will shine a light into this darkness. Now what darkness is Jesus talking about? The darkness that doesn't understand God. The darkness that sees God as a punisher striking out at people who sin. The darkness that sees God as cruel and harsh. So Jesus says, let me show you how God looks at this blind man. Verse 6 and 7. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Here's a man who has been born blind. Now, no doubt, all of his life, people have tried their home remedies on him, all to no avail. And one of those home remedies was that saliva had some cleansing power in the eye, all right? Now, if that sounds ridiculous to you, remember, we live in a time where we get glasses, right? 
We all get glasses that are available to everyone. And we get our eyes fixed that way. Back then, there's no such thing. Imagine this morning if we collected all your glasses at the door. How'd you be doing right now? Some of you could hardly find your pew if you couldn't have glasses, okay? Uh, you wouldn't get along very well. So anything back then that offers hope, you're going to try it. Even spit. Even spit. So why does Jesus make mud out of spit and dirt and put it on the man's eyes? And for that matter, why does Jesus tell him to go wash in the pool of Siloam? Couldn't Jesus just heal the eyes outright? Yes, he could. He did it lots of other times. And understand, the mud on the man's eyes had no effect on the cure. Didn't do anything. Neither did washing in the pool of Siloam have any effect on the cure. What cured him is strictly the loving heart of Jesus moving in compassion towards that man and healing his eyes. Jesus didn't need mud. He didn't need water. He didn't need those things. So, why use the mud? And why send him to the pool? That's a good question. The blind man would recognize the mud on his eyes as an attempt at a cure. You probably have already experienced similar things. And so as Jesus comes to him, he asks, Who are you? A physician? And Jesus answers, My name is Jesus. I'm putting mud on your eye. So he understands now that Jesus is attempting to cure his eyes. Now, go wash off the mud in the pool of Siloam. If you could look at an old map, uh, there's a path that leads from the temple, a straight path, to the pool of Siloam. It's probably about a thousand yards from the temple. A walled up path. It's a straight path. So the blind man probably has been down that path many times. And he can feel his way along the pathway towards the pool. And who knows? Who knows? This man Jesus spoke in a very kind way. But he also spoke with authority. There's something different. So, I'll try it. So he feels his way down that thousand feet of road. Arrives at the pool. 
reaches into the water and splashes the water on his face. And as he washes away the dirt, he can suddenly see. And you imagine how dazed he is at first. And quickly, he scoops for more water and more water and washes and washes and washes till all the mud is off. And he looks around for the first time ever. Every sight. He's never seen people's faces before. Colors. He has no idea what color is. Now he sees color. The sunshine. And he turns back to the pathway that he just felt his way along in blindness. He sees every stone in the road, every tree, every wall, and his spirits are lifted higher and higher and higher until he's on the top of the world. Now this man, if you saw him, you'd say, he looks different. He looks different. Instead of the glazed look and dull eyes, now he's full of an intensity and his eyes shine with pleasure and joy. He just looks different. Verse 8. Neighbors, therefore, said that they before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said, He's like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore they said unto them, How are thine eyes open? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay, and anointed mine eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam, wash. And I went and washed and received my sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. <clears throat> Jesus' reputation was well known. But most of his miracles had been done in Galilee. He didn't do many in Jerusalem. But here's a man known to be born blind who can now obviously see, and he says, Jesus healed my eyes. Now, here's a real strange twist in what is so far a wonderful story. Verse 13, They brought to the Pharisees him that was aforetime was blind, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Someone tells the Pharisees. Why? Why tell them? Because they know the Pharisees hate Jesus. As a matter of fact, a couple of hours before this, they tried to stone him. John chapter 8, verse 59. They took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them 
and so passed by. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man that was blind from birth. Jesus had the ability to reach into people's minds and cause them to be unable to recognize him. Now, you and I have facial recognition, and our brains tell us who we're looking at. Jesus could change that in people. That's probably how he got away from the 5,000 when they wanted to make him king. He did it quite a few times. So Jesus makes himself unrecognizable and walks out the temple as they are grabbing stones to stone him. And it says he passed right by them straight to an exit. And as he's going out the exit, there's a blind man. I don't know if I'd stop. <laughs> well, so why did they want to stone him? What brought that about? Because he just told them this. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Levi told you last week, that as Jesus walked on the water, they said, who is it? He said, I am. That's the name of God. It was so holy to the Jews, and they didn't speak it out loud. And Jesus said to them, before Abraham was, I am. And he claimed then to be God. And what did they say? Oh, no, you're not God. And now a man born blind is brought to them who claims Jesus made me see. They've just said publicly with stones in their hands, you are not God. And now... What do we do with this blind beggar who claims that Jesus made him see? So they start an investigation, and it's a real live cross examination like watching Perry Mason. All right? They're really going to get after him. Verse 15. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how that he received his sight. And he said unto them, he put clay on my eyes, I washed, and do see. They have an argument among themselves. <clears throat> he breaks the Sabbath law. He did this on the Sabbath. So he's got to be a sinner. And they have an argument among the Pharisees. Yeah, but how can a sinner... Do that kind of a miracle. Verse 17. They say to the blind man again, What sayest thou that he that opened thine eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. So they asked the blind man, What do you think? He said, He's a prophet. Got to be a prophet. At least that sounds reasonable. Prophet is someone sent from God, so he has to be a prophet. So the Pharisees say, you know what we think? The whole thing is a scam. Call his parents. We'll check and see if he really was born blind. Now the parents are afraid because the Pharisees are obviously anti-Jesus. 
So they say, don't ask us. We don't know anything. He's old enough to speak for himself. So the Pharisees call the man back and they say this. All right, you can see. God healed your eyes. Not this man that's a sinner. So praise God that you can see and forget this Jesus. Verse 25. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I can see. He said, I don't know all about Jesus, but I do know one thing. I used to be blind, now I can see. They decided that Jesus was a sinner, just like they decided the blind man was a sinner. They had them both sinners. So they pressure the blind man. I'm going to get you to back down a little there, buddy. Here we go, verse 26. They said to him again, What did he do? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, Have I told you already and you did not hear? Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? And they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple. We are Moses' disciples. As for that... God spake unto Moses, we know, but this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that you don't know where and whence he is, yet he hath opened my eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. If any man be a worshiper of God and doth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, it was not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. He's a wonderful fella, this blind guy. I want you to notice the progress of the blind man. At first, all he knows is Jesus' name. That's all he knows. Who healed my eyes? Jesus. First thing he knows is Jesus' name. Then, he goes to Siloam, washes off the mud, and he can see. Which, he thanks Jesus, gives Jesus all the credit. So, secondly, I know that Jesus is a healer. When they question him, what do you think about this, Jesus? Third thing he says, Jesus is a prophet. He's sent from God. And then a reasoning process in his mind begins. God hears people who worship him. In the history of the world, no one ever healed a man born Blind. Therefore, this Jesus must come straight from God. Perfect logic. You go, blind man. You tell him. There's one more step, blind man, and you'll be there. 
I want you to see that the light is gradually dawning in his mind. He's opening up more and more to the truth of who Jesus is. He's a healer. He's a prophet. He's a worshiper. He's sent from God. Well, what the Pharisees did was they excommunicated him with the words, you don't teach us. We're the teachers. We'll do all the teaching. You're not going to teach us anything. So you're out. And one of the worst things that could ever happen to a Jew was to be excommunicated from the temple. Verse 35. And Jesus heard that they cast him out. When he found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So there's the final step. All the light now comes into his mind. Jesus is yes a healer. Jesus is yes a prophet. Jesus is yes a worshiper. And he's sent from God. Uh, and the next step. Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. Doing God's will down here on earth. Helping people to understand who God is. How God behaves. And what God thinks. The blind man's progress towards the light is based on one fact that he refused to let go of. I used to be blind, and now I can see. But there's a tragic end to this story. Down to verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I come into this world that they which see might not see. And they would see might be made blind. Some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. That day when Jesus said, Before Abraham was I am, the Jews took up stones to stone him, saying, Oh, no, you're not. You are not the Son of God. Uh, When he healed the man born blind, they said, He's a Sabbath breaker. He must be a sinner. God healed your eyes, not this sinner Jesus. And then... With perfect logic, the blind man says, God doesn't listen to sinners. Not since time began was it ever heard that the eyes of a man born blind were opened. Therefore, Jesus came from God. So ignoring the obvious Refusing to change their opinion, they tossed the man out of the temple. And Jesus says to them this, 
If you were born blind, you Pharisees, if you were born blind, you might have had an excuse. But when you claim to be teachers, nobody can tell you anything, and you refuse to accept the truth, which is right in front of you, and still claim to know it all, and he says, you are blind. Spiritual blindness comes from hardening of the heart. And the hardening of the heart comes when you refuse to do business with Jesus. Think of it, my friends. Here's Jesus. He died to be able to forgive our sins. We know that. Therefore, there's a logical conclusion. You are a sinner and you need him. If Jesus died, went that far, to give his life to die on a cross for sinners, then the logical thing is you're a sinner and you need him. But people say, no, I'm not a sinner. I don't need forgiveness. And your heart gets hard and you become blind to the truth. I don't know how many times I've seen people interested in God, listening to the story of Jesus. And when the moment of truth comes, they back up and they tell me, uh, I got my own ideas. That is spiritual blindness. Who is Jesus? What does he do? How does he think? All that overrides what you think and your ideas. The Pharisees refused to change what they believe. And Jesus says that they were the real blind ones. My friends, truth about Jesus is what he wants to do for you. It is liberating. It is blessing. It is freedom. And you will have it when like the blind man, you're down on your knees worshiping Jesus. Because the cause of spiritual blindness, which is the hardening of the heart, beware, my friends, keep your heart soft. Let God move you and mold you. It will fill you with light. And you will see and understand and know who God is. The blind man's gradual grasp of who Jesus is stands in stark contrast to the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. Their refusal to accept the obvious. Once I was blind, and now I can see. Would set them at odds with Jesus until they grew to hate him. And the hardness of their heart was so hard that they hated him till all that was left in their mind was murder. 
Next week, a stunning miracle, and Jesus seals his own faith. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that it grows in our mind and teaches us who you are. We ask that we would be soft-hearted, always taking it in, gathering it in so that we will know who you are and worship at your feet. Bless the truth as it comes to us, along with a warning that to those who will decide their own way, they take a serious bad turn towards the spiritual blindness. Let us be filled with light, following you and climbing up towards you with all of our hearts. Bless us, we pray, as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing our last song, 287, Jacob's Ladder. Standing as we sing, page 287, Jacob Flatt.
ask that you would help us to see more and more of your truth each day. Help us to know what it is we ought to do. Shed the light in our hearts. Take away the dark places. Help us to see more and more of what you have for us. May we see and accept the truth and have soft hearts and not hardened hearts. We ask for these things. We ask for your help in every situation, whatever it is that comes in our life. May we love you more and more each day, serve you more and more. We ask for these people in this place and out there in their homes and their vehicles, wherever they might be, Lord, watch over them, protect them. Bring us all back to this place as we long to do and be together. We are thankful for your hand on us. Watch us through this time. Put a special help and a guide on us, we pray. And we thank you for your blessing that you are with us always, even to the end of this age. We just pray for these things and all these people in your name. Amen.